This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Samir Singh from TechTalks.net on the recent announcements from the Apple 7 September 2016 event. We examine the implications of the new iPhone 7 and discuss whether the smartphone market is undergoing structural changes across Asia and their broader strategy in home and automotive industry. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. And how are things with you in London? Very, very good. Having some good, good weather today. Yes, it's good to have you back. I'm talking to my good old friend Samir Singh, now Industry Analyst Director from Annie. Since we last spoken, what have you been doing? We started writing some blog posts for the company as well. That's been interesting because it's given me an opportunity to sort of combine industry knowledge and company data together to come up with stuff that we probably wouldn't have come up with otherwise in in a public domain, obviously. In in private, we've been doing this. Over time, we're going to be doing this more and more with customers as well on a more one-to-one basis. Of course, we've also launched Forecast product at Pani. That's pretty cool. It's probably one of the first app store forecasts in the industry, or at least the first one at this level of depth. And we're seeing some interesting traction for that. Today, I got you here to do topics, but actually it's going to be broken into two episodes. So we're going to start from the first episode and without fail, it's going to be talking about the post-Apple event that happened on 7th of September, 2016. We probably should run the overview of what are the key announcements that came out of the Apple event on 7th of September, 2016. All right. Okay, so let's start in the order in which Apple went. They gave out some updated numbers on Apple Music, the the installed base of iPhones. The actually interesting part was obviously the hardware. So on the Apple Watch, we got an incremental upgrade. It was largely the same physical design, except with GPS and waterproofing. Interestingly, the new Apple Watch model, the Apple Watch 2, is actually $20 more expensive than last year's Apple Watch model. On the iPhone, we saw another incremental upgrade, largely the same physical design. As everyone already knows, no headphone jack and a bunch of internal improvements, you know, upgraded processing power, waterproofing, new storage capacities. It's largely going in sort of in that direction. Very, very incremental upgrade. Of course, again, for the iPhone 7 Plus, we saw another $20 price increase. That to me painted an interesting theme because Apple has about a 24-month product design cycle. So when Apple was designing these products, they obviously were doing the iPhone 6 cycle and they hadn't seen what Apple Watch sales looked like. So they were riding pretty high. So they probably felt comfortable making incremental changes. But then all of a sudden, the last cycle happened, the Apple Watch didn't fare as well, the iPhone sales started declining. So it seems to me like at least sort of the pricing increases, I mean, the small pricing increases, but what they're trying to do is shore up ASPs and make sure margins are are healthy as uh, sales decline. Because in combined with this pricing update, there's been supply chain news coming out that Apple has been pressuring them to cut prices and cut orders at the same time, which is fairly uncommon, unusual. They've been pushing back on it, but knowing Apple, they'd probably get what they want because they've been playing some suppliers against each other. In addition to the price increases, they're also trying to reduce component costs at the same time. So the other two announcements that also come out is the AirPods, which is the wireless Uh headphones that you can actually take that as 160 US dollars, which is priced just below the Beats brand that they own as well. Uh And then there is also the two major announcements with Nintendo having mobile games and also the Uh Niantic Pokemon Go now on the Apple Watch itself. So those are probably all the key announcements that yeah. they have got. I think the, the first question I wanted to ask is what are the insights that we can draw from this Apple iPhone announcement 
that will actually go for upgrade cycles and are there actually signs of underlying structural changes in the smartphone market given that you've already pointed out that the ASPs have gone up by $20 in the new yeah. iPhone and Apple Watch yeah well the underlying structural changes they've been festering for a while right i think now it's becoming increasingly clear it's become very very obvious that smartphone hardware is maturing there's only so much more you can do from a hardware perspective to completely reinvent someone's smartphone experience today now if you just look at the top apps that are used by most people you know, on games let's say pokemon go on the app side facebook snapchat nothing on the hardware side is going to change your experience. you could use snapchat on an iphone 6 and on an iPhone 7 the pictures are going to be slightly better on an iPhone 7 but your experience largely is not going to is not going not going to be that different and that's part of what i've been saying is hardware is becoming good enough right and that's something that's going to lead to major structural changes of course the upgrade cycles are going to lengthen people think that the smartphone they have is good enough for them and they don't need to go and upgrade and you know people have been talking about that for a while that gets exacerbated when you look at financing plans so about 2 years ago from from today around the time when the iPhone 6 was launched multiple carriers were rolling out financing plans and to replace subsidy for their network especially in the US T-Mobile kind of launched it earlier but the other carriers are following suit only in 2014 during the iPhone 6 cycle of course the iPhone 6 cycle we, we could never tell what's going to happen because that was a super cycle so we we had no way to see the impact of financing plans on average what uh, there, there was a two year replacement rate normally that's when people came to replace their phones right so now we are going to see people who bought their iPhones on financing plans come for an update a year that's clearly not going to be a super cycle so how did they react to these prices seeing prices clearly and seeing the kind of upgrade they're getting so in that case it's it's easy to imagine that upgrade cycles are going to lengthen that's one side of it the second side of it is people who bought the lowest end iphone possible in the us free on subsidy whatever today when they go to a carrier they're basically just presented to the financing plans right so they can see the price up front so at that point now people who bought a 2 year old phone 2 years ago today their phone is quite old the odds of them holding on to that phone a year longer pretty low they have a choice they can either pay the price that, uh, that the iphone is at with a financing plan we are knowing what that price is or opt for a cheaper alternative model this is the first cycle in which we are actually going to be able to see the impact of that i don't know where we look for for that data it's possible some carriers would release at least give us some sense of what's going on but those are the things to watch for especially in the us there's been some data coming out of at least the indian market that sort of gives us a bit of a hint of what's going on so in q2 iphone sales in india declined by 35% so that was i mean at the uh, iphone sales in india were already pretty small about 1.2 million last year in that quarter there went down to about 800k this quarter the interesting part about that is india never had an iphone 6 bump obviously because the the vast volume of sales in india is three year old iphones not even two year old iphones but three year old iphones which apple keeps on sale in india through resellers so basically that's the low end of the portfolio that we are talking about So if iPhone sales declined 35% while Android sales went up basically around 28 30% clearly there's been some transition from point A to point B given the nature of the Indian market it's not like people just stop buying phones so that's a small granted India is a very very different market the perception of value for money is much higher in India than it is uh, in western markets but it gives you a a hint of what's going on so that's kind of what I'm looking for and that's going to give us a clear indication of a dramatic structural changes in the market i can add something to that in my last podcast episode with Nuni Panel he also pointed out that when you look at the iPhone users and the Android users one of the big issues for iPhone users in India is that the access to services such as iTunes or other Apple services are not actually available in India while mm-hmm. Android 
you can actually get most of the Google services pretty easily. That also has a kind of yeah. network effects within the Indian market itself. Yeah, and that's an added value proposition, so to speak, for the Android phones. I wanted to follow up with another question. So Apple says that they will now not release the first weekend pre-order numbers as they are no yeah. longer representative. So what does that tell us a little bit about the supply and demand in the iPhone sales coming up in this upgrade cycle? Well, to be honest, for the last, I don't know, four or five iPhone cycles, the first weekend sales have always been about supply rather than demand. There's always been, Apple's a very, very strong brand. They've got very, very loyal customers, some of whom upgrade every year, some of whom upgrade every two years, but very, very regularly, and, and, they're, and they're extremely loyal. Right? And they a lot of them want to upgrade the moment the phone comes out. So uh, every single time when Apple puts out a phone, they always sell out. Okay. Right? And that ha- that's going to happen this time as well. Hmm. So when Apple says that they're no, lo- no longer representative, I-, I have to ask, what's different this year? What I think is that every single year so far, Apple has been adding markets to-, to the launch year. And this year, and last year, they added China. So that moved the numbers from 10 million to 13 million. This year, they had no new new markets left to add, at least not ones that will move the needle. So Apple thought the numbers are going to look flat or slightly lower than last year. And so they didn't put out the numbers. That's what I think. I'm going to be confessing here, I'm on a two-year upgrade cycle. I've already purchased my iPhone 7 at a 256 <laughs> gigabyte. So yes, I'm Apple fanboy. So yeah, you know, <laughs> and I was looking at my couple of my friends and they have all bought it. So I don't know whether we have actually contributed or not contributed to the Apple cycle because of the N equals one anecdote. Other than that, I wanted to get to the other conversation about the important announcements that happened during this e- event pertaining to industry overall, because you look at this industry overall from apps, from the smartphone point of view, and also to Asia. So I guess the first question, I, I, Yen Dawson wrote this article about the features of the iPhone really meant for the future. I'm going to ask you this question. Are the features for the iPhone really for the future, given the incrementalism? You could say that incrementalism is for the future uh, as well, right? So all products need, need incremental changes. It's not like products can get better without incremental changes. And every change is not going to be a bigger jump. But what's more important is that with every single iPhone cycle, leaving the iPhone 6 aside, Every single cycle has seen a, the impact of the upgrade has been smaller than the larger one. And that's natural. The iPhone 6 was the exception because moving to a larger screen dramatically changed people's app experience and software experience because it became a, a better media consumption device. And that took away a lot of sales of, you know, small sort of mid-range media tablets. iPad sales, a lot of the iPad sales decline can be attributed to larger screens on the iPhone. And that's something that's not going to happen again. Uh, I, I really doubt something like on that scale is going to happen again, at least on the smartphone. Regarding Jan's point, I agree that incrementalism, the, you know, the features are for the future, but I think he's overstating their impact. I sort of read that article. He's talking about, you know, wireless headphones. Yeah, correct. Yeah. If those are for the future, Apple wouldn't be giving you lightning headphones as well. There's a way to go. There's, it's like a small incremental improvement as, as we keep going. We've also got the home button. And I think that's the one that's really overstated. So Apple removed the home button and replaced it with a force touch uh, element. And over time, that's going to move it onto the screen. Look, the home button has been part of the display on Android phones for years now. Granted, it gives you some advantages, but it's not hugely meaningful. It's not going to completely reinvent your app experience. Force touch itself has barely had an impact on, on most people's app experience because developers haven't rushed to adopt it. Some major ones have. There are some benefits, but they're not massive benefits. right? And that's a small incremental uptake. So yeah, for the future, not a huge deal. How about Apple's trying to increase prices as you have kind of suggested by adding like 20 bucks to the ASP itself? 
for the Watch Series 2 and the iPhone 7 Plus. I think they've learned from the iPad. Luckily for Apple, they've had experience with a major product declining in sales pretty steeply, and that's the iPad, right? So what Apple did with the iPad was, with the iPad Pro, try to really massively increase ASPs to make up for those declining volumes. So in the last quarter, for the first time, iPad revenues went back into growth, even though the volumes continued declining. Of course, that was from a small base from last year. Uh, iPad sales have been declining for a few years now. But potentially, that's something to look at, right? So now, with the structural changes in the market, I do expect iPhone sales to sort of start declining over time. I do think it'll reach steady state because Apple is a very, very strong consumer brand. And there's a tendency for a lot of Apple analysts to see only two kinds of analysis. One is Apple is doomed and one is Apple is the greatest company in the world. There's a lot of room in the middle. What I think is iPhone sales are going to start declining and they will reach steady state at some point because... Apple has a very, very loyal user base in the the high end of their portfolio and maybe the top end of the mid-range. I think the bottom end of mid-range and lower part of their portfolio, over time, a lot of those consumers, those are the ones at risk. But Apple can reach steady state like with the iPad to the iPhone. So they'll still be a very, very profitable company even after all the structural changes. Assuming they do not announce any newer products, they'll be a slightly smaller but very, very profitable company. So one interesting point was that Apple has started even adopting country and regional standards. I use the example of them using the Felicia standards for phones and watches in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I think they are hinting that they are also going towards certain other regional standards, which for Apple is not really yeah. a very common thing to do. I think this is something quite important to Asia. So do you want to give some thoughts on that? Apple originally released Apple Pay as a future world where you wouldn't have to carry your wallet and make physical payments with your phone. So far, clearly, they haven't got great amount of traction. Apple Pay gets a good chunk of mobile payments, but mobile payments as a whole aren't hugely popular at the moment. And I think the reason for that is, granted, it grants you additional security, which most consumers have never cared about as long as you get a base level of security with an existing product. Credit cards, debit cards, they're a habit. Uh, they're a long-standing habit and in order to break that habit you have to offer a solution that is dramatically more convenient unfortunately mobile payments not just apple pay samsung pay android pay they are not that solution because it takes you largely the same amount of time to complete that transaction and your your credit card or debit card is never at the risk of, of having its battery die on you i doubt there are many people out there in the world who are comfortable enough carrying their phone everywhere without their wallet. And unless you do that, mobile payments aren't going to necessarily become a habit. So I think what Apple's trying to do now is they're looking at markets where they're sort of more technologically advanced. Japan is, is one of them. And they're trying to add regional support into their, their device so they can try and get some traction there. What I think is going to happen and what I, where I think mobile payments should be, efforts should be focused over the next couple of years is in-app payments and online payments. Because that's where it adds more convenience rather than having to add, add type in your entire credit card number. I mean, that doesn't make a difference for sites like Amazon that already have your card on file. But for other sources, I think it sort of eases some friction. Right? I think that's where they should be focusing. So with that, I want to get to the other one is about the AirPods. Okay. There are two underlying themes about that. So the first one I want poking fun of it is about courage. So do you yeah. think there's an act of courage? And then the second one, I actually want to go deeper into talking about the chip design and also how this may have some implications to the Internet of Things that's ongoing in the physical world with a lot of smart city initiatives (laughs) over Asia Pacific. Okay, Uh, what I say right now is probably going to make me very, very unpopular with both Apple fanboys and Apple haters, which is an area I've been before, so I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with. So I do think it was an act of courage. Removing a major port used by 
millions and millions of consumers is not easy. Uh, it's something Apple's it's done Apple's done before removing floppy drives, removing you know optical drives. Uh, Steve Jobs pointed this out this out as well. So yeah, I definitely think it was courageous. I do think the way Phil Schiller said it was extremely hubristic, came off very, very arrogant. I mean, maybe part of that is cultural for Apple. A lot of Apple's culture is Steve Jobs' personality, right? So that it's, a lot of it has just been imbibed into, into the company. And Steve Jobs was brilliant. He had an eye for design. He was also extremely arrogant. But I, he was also a much better communicator. I think John Gruber pointed this out. He was a much better communicator than anyone else at Apple. So when he, even though he was arrogant, you'd like him for it. Phil Schiller, I don't think, has the same quality. I mean, the flack he's caught for it is is justified. I do think he was factually correct, but just the way it came off was incredibly arrogant. That aside, <laughs> what about the W1 chip on the ear pods then? Okay, that is interesting. So anytime Apple designs, let's say completely integrates a product, you know they have, they have bigger plans for it. They wouldn't be making wireless headphones with a chip inbuilt if they just intended to them to be wireless headphones, right? Long term, I think what Apple is trying to do is compete with voice agents like Amazon Echo and Google Home. But what Apple doesn't want to do is create a standalone device that is not going to have great margins. It's not going to have a screen or not going to have a display that you interact with because that's basically Apple's strength. So instead, what they're doing is they're creating wireless headphones with the ability to call in Siri, but wireless headphones that need to be tied in either to your iPhone or an Apple Watch, which are surprise, surprise, high margin Apple devices, right? Largely, I think that's where they're going. Now, there are two challenges with this. One, it's easier to sell someone an idea that we're selling you a voice agent that's going to tie in with your phone. It has it holds five hours of charge. Rather than we're going to sell you wireless headphones, they hold five hours of charge and they cost $160. And later on, we'll also tell you that it's going to be a voice agent. That's slightly more troubling. It's a harder, harder sell. So once consumers sort of get into their mind that these are wireless headphones, it might be a little difficult for them to see it as anything else. Again, I might be wrong about that, but I think that's one challenge. Mm. The second one is how relevant voice agents are going to be. I know a lot of tech adopters are extremely excited about, about voice agents. But if you look at, I mean, Google Trends can be, can be very wrong. But if you look at Google Trends, if you search for Amazon Echo, the search results Obviously, this was US only. So even within the US, the search results are entirely focused on California. And within California, Silicon Valley. right? So they've, they've, sold, they've sold a few million. A lot of it has gone to very, very early tech adopters. There's a tendency among early adopters to go after products that remind them of, of science fiction. The problem is science fiction, uh, tech advances, consumer product, at least popular consumer products, and science fiction have not always aligned. In fact, I'd go far enough to say is they've rarely aligned. So voice agents remind me of something like, like that. I'm not bearish on voice agents like Amazon Echo and Google. I think they're interesting, but I'm not, and in this case, potentially AirPods, but I'm not ready to anoint them as the next platform. So there's a lot of analysts out there who say voice is the next platform and company X or Y needs to be there. I mean, it remains to be seen. You see, here's the thing. I have tried the Amazon Echo and I really love the device. It's only when I was living in the US Mm-hmm. That is like the perfect device because I'm literally buying almost everything from Amazon. 
Uh-huh. I mean, if it really serves the, like if you are a Amazon user, the Echo is perfect for you in terms of a device. And it's very useful now with all the bots. Actually, I've been testing different bot applications. Like for example, getting news, getting football scores, getting different information from that. There's a huge developer effort going into that. That might actually change the calculus of that. It may not be like a platform like the smartphone, but it would also be the, the kind of platform that could also become, I would say, like a intermediary platform before the next big platform. I could believe that. Out of curiosity, are you an Amazon Prime subscriber? Yes, I am. Now. For the Amazon buying experience, it's yep. clearly meant for their best customers and to tie them closer to the Amazon ecosystem and for you to increase your spend on Amazon. There, I absolutely agree. So from Amazon's perspective, the Echo is a home run. As long as it's, it's met that requirement, it's a fantastic product for them. Right? And I didn't feel the, the power of the Amazon Echo until I became a Prime subscriber. That was something that was very significant. So in order for any user to get full power of the Amazon Echo, mm-hmm. they have to be a Prime user. Which is exactly what Amazon wants. They want to give consumers as many reasons as possible to subscribe to Amazon Prime. Right? Because that's kind of their profit driver for the, for the e-commerce business because the margins on the, on the rest of them are, are pretty, pretty tiny. But on it as a developer platform, I'm largely with you. I think it has some potential. I'm not, I'm not ready to anoint it as it's, it's definitely going to be something because I'm not entirely sure how comfortable regular people are using their voice to interact with the device, at least just yet. Maybe over time, it does get there. And maybe part of that is sort of the voice skills that Alexa learns. So I think it has some potential. I'm not ready to anoint it as the next platform yet. And I think a lot of the discussion around it is extremely, it's too early to talk about it. I, I just want to add one interesting point. So if you have kids in the house, uh, mm-hmm. Amazon Echo actually filters out the kids' voice frequencies. So they, no, that they, would annoy them. <laughs> yeah, that would annoy them. But it's actually, they, they actually put in the correct commands to get Alexa to do things. Well, so it's actually, right. it's very interesting in terms of technology. What mm-hmm. I thought was yeah. interesting that only when you're a prime user, you actually can get a lot more, you have a lot more reason to use the Amazon Echo and less of that. That is something that I find it very surprising. But coming to the sort of the final part of this conversation is that I think there, there are two tracks that go I mean, Apple cannot be living on the iPhone anymore because that cash cow is going to go at some point. So yeah. there are only two places that could go. One is Apple's strategy for the home with their home kit, but there's nothing happened. So any hints from the yeah. event before my next one? From home kit, I didn't see that much more. I know they've integrated home some elements of home kit into the, uh, into the iPhone maybe, but I, I didn't follow that too closely. I think the... The AirPods one is mildly interesting because the AirPods can interface with any device. It's, it's possible that Apple is going to open up their partner ecosystem for it. So if you could build, let's say, a thermostat that talks to your AirPods, I don't know what that range is going to be, but that could be something somewhat interesting. It's, it's very similar to what Alexa is doing. So the Amazon Echo becomes a hub that talks to multiple devices in your house. I think Google Home is going for something similar. So in this case, AirPods would, would I think, be that device. It's possible that the iPhone interfaces with those, with those devices or the Apple Watch interfaces with those devices and the AirPod is how you communicate with them. That's the interface they're going for. By the way, the AirPods cost $160. According to my spouse is that you're likely to lose these AirPods. <laughs> so there's also another strategy for Apple to increase their profits on the hardware side. Okay, but... The, the good thing is apparently you can buy just one if you lose one. Oh, is that the case? I, I have know. no idea what the price is. Maybe they charge you 160 again for it, but, <laughs> but you can't just buy one. Okay. But the last question is because there's um, just this morning, there's the New York Times article about the Apple car project getting into some problems. 
So I guess we talked about this in the last podcast when you were here about yep. whether the only way for Apple to get past this whole smartphone upgrade cycles is that they come up with the next big product to take them to the next big place. But it seems that the Apple Car project is hitting some bumps now. So what do you think? First, I wouldn't read too much into speed bumps because any single innovation project is going to hit multiple speed bumps through its life cycle. There's going to be multiple pivots, some things that work, some things that don't. I wouldn't want to read too much into this one specific report, right? That said, I have always been extremely confused about the Apple Car project. I mean, I know there are people, there are Apple analysts out there who are extremely bullish about this. But if you look at the automobile industry is a tough industry to get in. Tesla has shown us that. I mean, Tesla's design has been fantastic. They've added some level of autonomy into their vehicles, their, their, their electric cars, their top-end design, their high-end cars. So there's largely the, the same kind of product that Apple would want to go after. And they've been losing money hand over fist. That's one part of it. The second part of it is what other companies are doing. Uber, Google. From, for them, autonomy is just a way to create a ride-sharing service to eliminate car ownership, right? And eliminating car ownership is not good for companies like, like Apple because these are product companies. What they want to do is make and sell you a product that's a combination of hardware, software, silicon, everything that they've developed, developed in-house to give you a great experience, a premium experience, right? Over time, if and, and these two approaches are completely at odds with each other. And so you have to ask yourself the question, which one is likely to happen first? Is our Uber or Google likely to create a, a desirable ride-sharing service that could that could minimize or, and go towards eliminating car ownership by the time Apple gets out a car that could drive volumes and revenue revenues in sufficient scale for them to make up for the iPhone decline? And that's, it's a, it's a difficult question. So the report also says that Apple's now pivoted from making a car. And if, if they're no longer building a car, I don't know what what their interest in autonomy is because Apple's not the kind of company that's going to license their platform out to car manufacturers. And they're not, not the kind of company that's going to get into a ride-sharing service because EDQ already said they have no interest in comp competing with Uber. So I'm going to so, let you hold that thought first because it's going to come to the part two in the next episode of our podcast because we have a great title for that episode. So before I end, Samir, how do my audience find you? You can find me on Twitter at Samir underscore Singh 17 or you can find my blog uh, tech-thoughts.net. And you can find me at blongcw at bernardlong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. We can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play. And of course, tweet to me because lately I'm getting a lot more feedback and a lot of recommendations for new guests on the show. So um, by the way, this is the show's second anniversary, but I will talk a little bit more with Samir in the next episode. And we'll come back in the next part of the episode. Thank you, Samir. Thanks, Bernard.